All right. You know we're in a series on, on what the role of Christians in the churches and society. And one of the things I like to do when we do a series is explain why we're spending time doing it. Because we get lost in that. And normally I start every series with that. And last week we decided to start with just hearing from you about some issues. And there was a lot of good feedback. I'm having a good time editing this talk that we did last week. And it will probably be ready very shortly. But there was a lot of lively discussion. We'll review just really briefly what we covered. But I want to just throw this out here. Why? spend time on this. Why is this important? I know this is going to hurt your head a little bit. We're not going to spend time just maybe reading through scripture like we did in Matthew. We need to think a little bit. And, and I think the reason is because, I'll be honest with you, I've been very bummed out. There's times when I feel like there is just no hope for Christianity in this country or even anywhere around the world. Like I just feel like giving up. I feel like just maybe the best thing is just to make my faith private and just, I know what I know and that's enough. And I don't really need to engage anybody else because there's so much craziness going on. And when I get in those moods, and I'm actually in one of those moods, <laughs> I've been in that mood for a while because when you see the issues that are facing Christianity, then they just become overwhelming. So what we're trying to do in this series is address some of them, break them down a little bit. That's going to require a little bit of work on our part. It's not going to be easy. We have to think a little bit and actually struggle, and I don't know where we come out. But I'm hoping if somebody challenged me this week to not give up, maybe what we need to do is realize that we can influence people around us. Maybe we're not going to overturn the crazy things that are going on in our country, even by fellow Christians. But we still have an ability to influence, first of all, first and foremost, ourselves. And also people that we know. Whether they be Christians or not, we still are influencers in their life. And the thing is, in this series... I'm trying to give us just a little bit of the tools that might help us just to understand where people are coming from and where this issue came up. So as you remember, the question we're trying to cover is, what is the role of the church? So last week, just to recap real briefly, we said that, of course, we know that there are some things that most of us would probably agree are functions of the church, like proclaiming the gospel or carrying the needs for community, prayer, worship, communion, talking about the Bible and educating people about God. Those are things that we all agree about. Last week was kind of an open discussion where I didn't really give a lot of parameters to the debate. I was just really trying to understand, what do you think about this? If we agree that the church should be involved in those other things, what about, how about things like protests about building a mosque? Should we even be involved in that? We heard from you last week on that. Or political battles regarding same-sex marriage. And we had some really interesting conversation. Last week, some really wise things came out. I'm not going to summarize all the things that came out because it's too much. I'm not going to even summarize where we came out because I think there were comments on all sides that were pretty good. That's why we record these things and you can listen to them later. I do want to point out that there are at least two issues that we seem to kind of generally come around. One is whether we should be involved in these issues was a question that kept coming up and people were on different sides of how we figure that out. But we said that if we are going to be involved there's still the secondary question of how it is that we're going to be involved. Some of you said, like, we might be involved, but maybe it's not to oppose something. Maybe it's to bring some sort of peacemaking. So there's a lot of questions still that we have to cover. But that was just kind of last week for you to kind of get a little bit of a taste. Afterwards, somebody came up and said, you know, I'm really disappointed because the clips that you used last week, the audio clips, kind of made Christians look bad. I mean, it seems like you went out and found audio clips where the Christians couldn't really be much dumber. And I want to point out to you something in response that I think is very important to understand. Okay, it is true that I 
found two audio clips, but it didn't take me long to find them. Those were the top two downloaded stories on NPR.org regarding the mosque. If you don't know what I'm talking about, I'm talking about National Public Radio. And in all honesty, the response I had as we were discussing this was, well, isn't NPR lean slightly liberal? Yes, it does. But NPR happens to also be the default thing that most of the intellectuals in this country listen to. That's where they're getting their news. So even if it leans left, even if they intentionally are going to find Christians that don't sound well, you know, when they're discussing the issues, even if that's kind of the way they're putting it together, that's what everybody's listening to. That de facto becomes the answer. Even Christianity Today, which I think is a very good magazine, noticed this trend. They had an article running this week on their web magazine. It said, Quran burning the never-ending story. That was the title of the article. They recognized that this silly little pastor in Florida was the story of the last two weeks because he had announced that he was going to burn the Quran. Now, as it turns out, he decided not to. But even Christianity Today recognized that this one person, we could say, well, that guy is an extremist. You can't judge the rest of us by an extremist. Well, that might be true, <laughs> logically. But when it comes to culture and society, which is what we're talking about, that's exactly what's going on. That story would not die to the point where Christianity Today kind of was bemoaning the fact that this story won't die. But they're not crying like, woe is me. They're just pointing out this story is not dying. It's in the public consciousness. Now, thank God we're in America because a week from now, most Americans forget what happened last week, so it won't really matter. You know, so our memory is like this, this long anyway. But for the moment, we're stuck in this. Here's something they say. They said, everybody who is anybody has come to condemn the burning. Gainesville authorities announced their commitment to enforcing the city's open-air burn ban. The service provider for the church pulled the church's website. And this guy, Terry Jones, inspired at least one copycat in Tennessee. Tennessee not to be outdone by Florida in Quran burning, apparently. Meanwhile, Westboro Baptist Church, who you guys probably have heard of before, they described them as the original shock protest congregation, complained that nobody seemed to care when they burned a Quran back in 2008. <laughs> they plan to reprise the protest now that the other church in Florida is backing down. So you can see that everyone is aware of these things that we might think, oh, come on, that's a silly example. Why are we even talking about this? It's just one guy. Right, one guy that everybody in the media has been talking about for a couple of weeks, even to the point that Christianity Today is, is pointing it out that these things are having impacts. One of, the, uh, one of the writers says, it's a critical time for the American church and a prophetic voice is needed in reference to Muslims. Christian leaders have spoken out against what's happening in Florida, but I think most Bible-believing, mission-minded, evangelical Christians are fixated on political problems. Very interesting commentary that we seem to be focused on political problems. Meanwhile, Muslims worldwide have been protesting these plans. Listen to this. In Afghanistan, hundreds assembled to burn a U.S. flag in retaliation. Many chanted death to Christians. You see how even they conflate the two that we were talking about last week, how it seems like politically and faith-wise, we always seem to mix those two up. People around the world look at the flag as a symbol of Christianity. So no wonder we seem to think of it as well. All right, I'm narrowing the question to one quadrant today. What should the relationship of the church be to our country? What I want you to think about for a moment is, what is the relationship of our church to the country? Specifically, I'm going to talk about tonight to the United States. Is this the relationship to the country 
that most of us envision. Here's a CD, God Bless America Again, just CDs of songs about America and God's blessing on it. It's subtitled, A Call to Prayer for the Nation We Love. All right? You can comment on any of these. I just picked out a few that I thought were kind of interesting to show how many Christians like to characterize their relationship to the country. Is this one expression? Anyone like this expression? Good. Anything wrong with blessing America? God blesses America, right? I mean, he must. The exclusivity of it is problematic. It's just America and not the rest of the world. Okay. Anyone else? It's okay? One, one, one demur to this one? I mean, it's unpatriotic to say that God doesn't bless America. Be careful. You know? You might, get, you might get thrown out of church for being unpatriotic. Yes. Uh, yeah, I can't, I can't stand any of this crap, the God bless America <laughs> stuff. It's like, no, it's just ridiculous that we have, like, the stranglehold on God's blessing. I don't even know what it means to say that God's blessed us anyways. Um, but I don't know the French would say God bless France. <laughs> and I don't know the, the, because they're very secular. And I, and I think it's a very uh, unique phenomenon to our country that there's this mixing of the secular or... I guess we overlook the secular nature of our country and we kind of put this this religious lens over it when it's really not there. I mean, if I think, I mean, and it goes, I think, deeper down when you hear people say this is a Christian nation and all that junk, you know, and it's really not, but that's that's what they think. And I, and I at least my own feeling is it's not a Christian nation, really, um, nor should it be, um, and I think, in the way that they think about it. So I think there's a lot of confusion. And so stuff like this, you know, it, 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 it'll sell. I mean, if I wanted to sell a Christian CD, I would totally do that, you know, because people would buy it. So which do you hate more, God or America, in your comments? Like, I couldn't tell. <laughs> I love God, and I think God loves everyone, ev okay. even the French. <laughs> I think one of the things that also hasn't been hit on yet, but it's just what, Jeremy kind of did a sense of what, how is God's blessing seen? You know, because people don't tend to point out, uh, like, the attitudes. That's not the God bless America that we want, is, you know, the weak and the humble and the peacemakers and all those things that, you know, where we would not, if you ask people, you know, what does it mean that God has blessed America, they would probably point to materialism and all kinds of things where, and, and yeah, there are proverbs and there are certain things where, hey, God maybe does give material blessings, so it's not totally outrageous, but... But usually it's so linear, it's so narrow that that's all they mean is, you know, we want our country back, you know, kind of what we talked about last week, that sort of strangeness. I don't know what that is. I like the way you connected blessing to the Beatitudes because we kind of forget that that is a blessed are those, right? Or So I like that, that that would be a good place to look at what blessings might mean. Yeah. I think also to people outside of the country will see that and um, connect if they, you know, if they don't like the United States particularly, they'll say, well, God bless the United States. The United States says, does these particular things that I don't agree with, then God does things that, you know, so I think they, they'll connect those to it and I don't think that that helps or helps anything. Okay. Good. That's an expression that we've seen. And by the way, Jeremy's comments, I think, are kind of what we're going to be talking about tonight is how do we even inherit this idea of this special blessing for America? Um, here's the one I liked uh, that I found that was kind of cool. Uh, you know, so it's like the United States or, or then Jesus kind of, I don't know if he's bursting through it. His, his light shines up. I'm not even sure, but it just caught my eye. And then I went to the website to make sure that it wasn't a Mormon-related site because I thought that would make sense. But I, I'm doing this just to wake us up a little bit before we go into the history part tonight. So like, you know, so, so have fun now. Uh, this is another one. Morgan did say, like, there, sure, there are psalms and proverbs that 
actually say, and of course even Paul has a whole theology that he develops about the state and authority and how God works with that. This one is citing Psalm 33:12, blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. I think they were probably talking about Israel, I, just, just to guess. Um, you know, and they probably, so anyway, but it is a general principle that I would accept, yes. If your God is the Lord, I think that would lead to blessing. I think that's a biblical truth in some way. So it takes away the exclusivity, but I just like that in this picture, you've got the Statue of Liberty, the flag, you know, you've got the Congress, you've got all the faces on Mount Rushmore, the American Eagle, and Jesus, you know? <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, and the, and the Ark from St. Louis, I almost didn't see that, yeah. Here's another one. <laughs> This is an actual statue. It's not been photoshopped. Somebody took this picture while they're driving. I think this one is in Memphis. Uh, so you got the Statue of Liberty holding up a cross and the Ten Commandments. Uh, and the inscription actually on the statue says, America returned to Christ. Okay? So that's an expression of this commingling that we're talking about that is so prevalent. Creative. I thought it was creative. Kind of like that. You know. Uh, here's another one that's kind of a similar theme. <laughs> yeah, that's an elephant with a flag on its back carrying the cross on its back. So clearly that's an uh, indication of the Republican Party, I think. But I just think the, the imagery of like the elephant carrying the cross, like that struck me really when I saw it. I thought that was very, that was disturbing, I guess is the best word I could use. Yeah. As if we're the ones who would have carried the cross rather than been uh, spinning in his face while he was walking down. Um, yeah, and it could just be the imagery of the cross, you know, like the imagery that we use of like bearing the cross. I don't know, but it just one of those things that to me, again, this is even more exclusive. Like this is a one party is bearing the cross of Christ, which, um, you know, okay. Uh, this, is a, this is just to check our logic to make sure we're all following logic. This is a sign that says, attention lunatic atheists and their lawyers. So here's the proof, in case you forgot from geometry how it works. Anti-God equals anti-American. Anti-American equals treason. So therefore, traitors led to the Civil War. Therefore, by the transitive property of logic in West Virginia, <laughs> apparently being anti-God will lead to the Civil War. <laughs> so you just have to kind of like follow the proof. So if you follow it all the way through... So, at least this guy gave us his address. We can write to him. <laughs> so, if anybody's out there is listening to this and you want to write to the Reverend E.F. Briggs, P.O. Box 9066, <laughs> Monoha, M-O-N-O-N-G-A-H, West Virginia, 26554. <laughs> all people in the sound of our voice in all the countries around the world, please write to this guy. <laughs> All right, here's a sign that has Uncle Sam says, we need you to help us get American politics back on track. Click here to join us. Now, that doesn't sound really weird. That looks like a political ad, except <laughs> this is on a Christian website that deals with politics. So they're identifying their own Christianity with a particular brand, which is, you know, again, the Uncle Sam image that we see over and over. It's important from their website's perspective that we have an understanding of American politics and get it back on track. I think you can understand probably whatever their agendas might be, what that means. But again, we seem to think of the two as the same. Here's another map of America. <laughs> so Jesus land is everything in red. America is everything in blue. <laughs> 
Anybody who's willing to accept this, just sign it and mail it in, and they'll secede. <laughs> I thought that was kind of poignant. Jesus land. And here is the proof. Apparently, if you hold up the American flag to the sun, a cross will shine through. And that proves that America is a very special place in God's eyes. If you remember, this is the reason that Constantine supposedly converted the entire Roman Empire, because he looked out and he saw the cross in the sunlight. So here, you can try this trick. Don't try it at home, though. You have to be a professional, right? We're going to get this one right. But if you take a flag and you hold it up to the sun at just the right moment, a cross will shine through, apparently. Where is this all coming from? I want you to think tonight, now that we've kind of poked at some things, do we have these same attitudes? Because I think some of us do. I've caught myself in some of them. You know, we might easily denounce and say some of that is ridiculous, but some of it may not be. Some of it has crept up in our own consciousness, and I'll tell you where it's caught me. Growing up, I actually heard a lot about God in this country, and as I start to look behind it, maybe what we've done is we started to read God into things because it was convenient for us. You'll see what I mean in just a moment. But before I get there, I'm going to throw a zinger at you a little bit. I'm going to be going through this little timeline here. I heard a comment that, like, well, we're not really a Christian nation, and I want to kind of walk through a timeline of a place where the United States was seen kind of as a new Israel by some people. And then in 2009, Newsweek writes a whole article that was actually very well written about the decline and fall of Christian America. How did we go from a place where people thought maybe this was a biblical land, an epic place, and why is it that so many of us believe that somehow America is special, it is different, it is blessed, and that God somehow does have his hand in this country. Where did those ideas creep up into our consciousness? I want to trace that. Here's the bizarre question I want to ask you first, though, just to keep you thinking, because I always throw bizarre questions at you. You don't have time to think about them. Here's the question. Does it violate the first commandment to join in prayer with religious leaders of other faiths and praying to God as understood by each participant? Does it violate the first commandment to join in national, patriotic, or civic events where prayers are offered to God on behalf of the nation. So in other words, if you engage in these kinds of civic, religious events, does that violate the first commandment? Now some of you are like, what's the first commandment? Just, just in case. The first commandment is, you shall have no other gods before me. Do we run the risk of creating or participating in the worship of other gods when we participate in these kinds of things? Just going to leave that question hanging for a moment. Let me walk you through some things, and we're going to come back to it. How did we get this idea of this civic religion in this country? And this is the part where I said, I'm going to have to make you think and give you some information because it's important that we help other people understand where they're coming from. And I don't think we understand where we got it from. So let me point out some things to you. Well before there was ever an American continent to walk along, there is already a debate brewing in our Protestant tradition. Martin Luther believed that there should be kind of two spheres, two kingdoms, some people say, that we really should separate church and state, or just the affairs of the church from the affairs of governance. I know it's a long quote, but listen to some of the things he says. He says, one should not mix or confuse two authorities, the spiritual and the secular. For spiritual power has its command to preach the gospel and to administer the sacraments. It should not invade an alien office. So he would say, it should not set up 
and depose kings. It should not annul or disrupt secular law and obedience to political authority. It should not make or prescribe laws for secular power or concern secular affairs. For Christ himself said, my kingdom is not from this world. And St. Paul in Philippians 3 says, our citizenship is in heaven. If you had Luther standing here, you would say, what do you think? And he would say, all of this political activism that we've been describing doesn't belong here. The church has a job, and it knows what it is. Now, in his mind, he limited it to preaching the gospel, administering the sacraments. Maybe we would add those other things on the first screen. But he would say, that's it. Let's not get involved in all the other things. We have no place disrupting laws or kings. He would probably say in our time, getting too involved in political fights. But another reformer, John Calvin, kind of believed the opposite way. Calvin thought, let no one be surprised that I now attribute the task of constituting religion a right to human polity. According to Calvin, no polity can be successfully established unless piety be its first care. And that those laws are absurd which disregard the rights of God and consult only from men. If you had John Calvin on the other side of the room tonight, they'd say, you have to get involved. They have to be the same. If you watch Calvin's writings, if you watch what he did in Geneva, he actually believed that the city and the state were one with the clergy in some ways. They had very heavy influence. And if you look at what he would say, if you see laws that disregard the rights of God, if you see laws that are not pious, then you should get involved. They just shouldn't exist because they can't be laws if they're not pious. We really have disregarded what we're supposed to be doing. So you might have another debate right from the start between two of the great reformers on two philosophies. Which one do you think you would adopt? Just think about it for a second, because I tell you right now which one we adopted. Can anyone guess? We adopted Calvin's view, and here's why. Because the earliest colonists in this country, now get ready for American history, the earliest colonists came over, and they were strongly influenced by Calvin, especially the Puritans, the pilgrims, who came over and had these societies. So, for example, we start from the very beginning with an idea that America is a special place. Watch how early it begins. In 1630, there's a very famous sermon preached by John Winthrop, who becomes the governor of the Massachusetts Bay Colony, and even while they're on the ship, they haven't even landed in the promised land yet, which is what he's calling it. He's preaching this sermon saying, we are going to establish a city on a hill. Where does that come from, the city on the hill language? It's from Matthew 5. It's from the Sermon on the Mount. This is Jesus describing like the whole Sermon on the Mount idea. We're building kind of like a new Jerusalem. Or go back to this promised land idea. Just as God guided Israel to the promised land, we're coming to the promised land in America. Now I could see the parallel maybe in your mind. Like imagine coming to this country when it was still undisturbed and new. Imagine like what you're going to do when you saw the beauty of this land and you're leading people across this treacherous thing across the ocean and you land here and you got to give a sermon. You think, hmm, sounds good. You know, we just crossed the ocean. That kind of sounds like crossing the Red Sea. This is great stuff. 
But it wasn't just accidental. It wasn't convenient. I think there was a feeling, and you could see it in the writings, this was something new. This was something special. And God had his hand on this, especially because you had so many religious people crossing to come find religious freedom. For the next 150 years, you see that colonial societies had no trouble mixing religious observance in their governance. Every town meeting was both like civil meeting and it was kind of a religious meeting. I mean, the idea of opening in prayer and having the clergy there at the same time, this was all comfortable. But of course it was. I mean, these were people who were coming to find their freedom and express their religions and it was very much the fabric of a very small society. Remember how small these colonies were at the beginning. So everyone knew everything in the best way to kind of control everything in some ways is by introducing the ecclesiastical order. But notice from the beginning, civil punishment existed for blasphemy and heresy and those kinds of things. So there was already this mingling. We have a special country, a special beginning, a special feeling, and this special relationship begins. All right, we're zooming really quickly through history. The founding fathers were heavily influenced by Jean-Jacques Rousseau and others, but Rousseau has a very special place in our religious development because Rousseau said that the best thing to have is a civil religion that tolerates but does certain functions. And here's the functions that it should have. And I want you to think for a moment as I read these so you have a context. Think about the God that we say, God bless America, and see if he fits this description. We want to have a God who exists who's powerful, wise, and benevolent, who foresees and provides for the life to come. We want to have a God who will provide for the happiness of people who are just. But we want to have a God who's going to punish those people who are wicked. And we want to have a God who cares very much about social contract and the laws of the land. That's what he's concerned about, making sure that the country functions very well. And that kind of becomes the God we adopt in this country. You guys remember from history that there was also a time where deism becomes kind of the big issue for the founding fathers. I put up a quick definition of deism if you don't remember what it is. It's belief in a supreme being who creates the universe. He can be observed in nature, but he doesn't intervene and you don't really need to have faith in him because that wasn't the purpose. The purpose was he's just a creator who creates and then we're all part of that creation and life just kind of goes on. Some people would refer to it as the watchmaker deity that just kind of sets it up, winds it up, and lets it go. This has a profound impact on the God that we're now talking about in this country. George Washington is a good example. Washington, in 20 volumes of letters, mentions God a number of times, but all of the names for God that he uses are all deistic names, like nature with a capital N, like providence with a capital P only mentions Jesus once, and most people who look at it think it was actually a clerk who inserted that into one of his speeches. He was heavily influenced by deism. So was Adams, Franklin, Jefferson, and I could list a number of others. And that's why Jeremy's comment about, I don't know if we ever were a Christian nation, might be absolutely true. I mean, it is right that we use the language that would very easily fit into Christianity, but from the beginning, you can see even Washington's earliest speeches. He avoided the use of any kind of identifying language for God, always trying as much as possible to use an anonymous term for God or something that was not that offensive. The founding fathers, all of them, influenced by Rousseau, kind of follow suit. So you have 
Rousseau, you have other thinkers. Jeremy earlier mentioned John Locke when we were talking. Enlightenment thinkers like that, deism and Freemasonry, which I won't go into because you could watch all the Nicolas Cage movies and we get all the Freemasonry that we need. Most of that is probably baloney. But Freemasonry originally was kind of very Christian influenced, but by the time of the Enlightenment was actually very deistically influenced. And most of the founding fathers were in the Freemasons of the deistic brand. So why am I bringing all this up? Because when it comes to understanding our roots, when I hear that phrase like, we want our country back, let's take it back, let's bring it back to what it was, I don't know that we ever were there to begin with. And we need to help people to understand maybe some of the places that we came from, because it seems, again, that we have an idea in our head that might fit, and we may have to help people realize that maybe you don't even really understand the God that you're talking about, because I don't know that he matches what I see in Scripture. Morgan. I think what's difficult as far as describing that history because um, some do know that they're deists. A lot just don't. You know, they don't even know, like founding fathers, most of them are deists and not exactly Christian. But I think the hard part is knowing that there is this deep Christian influence from the beginning as well. So there's a real, it's a real easy thing to just think, oh, we're a Christian nation. You know what I mean? That, that's what I think is, can be very hard for people to understand because it, most of them were Puritan. You know, and, and most did have a Christian faith, but it was never a Christian country, yet comprised mostly of Christians. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's a, it's a strange, difficult mix to be like, yeah, but it really wasn't a Christian country, it just had a lot of Christians, but, it, I mean, there's a strange back and forth there that is difficult. If Christians were the only ones around, which is not totally true, but by far the majority, like in the 90-some percentile, then when you were talking about this God, then you were mostly going to use the symbols of a Christian faith because that was the one that was most readily available. And I think that's where in our history, you know, over time, you're going to see in a moment, we didn't, that actually became problematic for the goals of the nation. Not for, I mean, Christianity, it became the problem, but we'll get there in a moment. Yeah. I feel like also a lot of people don't understand that if you look at history and these same founding fathers, especially like Alexander Hamilton, who's not actually listed up here, they didn't trust the masses and a lot of instances sought to control the masses and they're smart men who understand that religion is very emotional and a very easy way to manipulate people's feelings so I don't think it was an accident that inserting this charged language about God is there. I think that's a very good point I want to build right off of it. The founding fathers actually argued for the religious freedoms of Muslims. Now there were not very many in the United States, but there were some. Remember, the Ottoman Empire was still pretty big at this time, so Islam was known, and it was actually a big force. They called them the Mohammedans. That's what they referred to them instead of Muslims. But here's why, because you brought up a very pragmatic point. Not everyone welcomed Islam. One preacher back then claimed that it's a religion that breathes nothing but arms and is propagated by arms. So that same kind of militancy is nothing new to our political rhetoric. It's been going on since the 18th century. But the architects of America, according to this article, welcome Muslims because they deemed belief, listen to this, in a carrot and stick afterlife essential to the experiment of liberty. So if you had a god that somehow was going to weigh your deeds in the end. Remember, go back to Rousseau. He's going to reward the just. He's going to punish the wicked. 
then that's a religion that could be tolerated in America because we need that kind of thing. Why? Because this experiment in liberty depends on people doing the right thing. The whole idea of a democracy could become unraveled if we have people who just do whatever they want or abuse the freedoms they've been given. And that's actually an idea that goes all the way back to Calvin. Because Calvin criticized Luther and said, you know, you gave them freedom when you said the state does this and the church does this, and the people in the state just did whatever they wanted to with this new freedom you gave them, and that's unstructured. And it led to, he didn't say anarchy, but it led to a lot of confusion and chaos. Calvin says you can't do that. That's why he brought them back together. Well, here, the founding fathers are saying, if the God we worship, whatever God that is, is going to have a carrot and stick kind of scheme, then we can work with that. So that would work for Jews. It would work for Christians. It would work for Muslims. It would work for anybody who has that kind of faith. Because what we're really trying to do here is steer a country. And as you said, it's a very good thing to use religion to do that. That's kind of what the founding fathers were kind of seeing. And they thought, hey, We'll call it whatever we have to. And if God gets people to act right and not rebel, because they were worried about people rebelling with all this freedom, if it gets them to just march the way we want them to do it, that's great, let's do it. Okay? So that's where we get the beginnings of our history. Let me dive through 100 years in two minutes. In the 1830s, Alexis de Tocqueville was a French, well, he's probably like one of the first political scientists. He was French, he was very enamored by what was going on in France, what was going on in America. His defining work was democracy in America. And he wrote, following up, remember Rousseau's 50 years earlier than him, he looks and he sees like the things that Rousseau was writing about that the founding fathers adopted turned out to be true. He says, in France I'd almost seen the spirit of religion and the spirit of freedom marching in opposite directions, but in America they were intimately united and they reigned in common over the same country. It worked. What the Founding Fathers had wanted to do was kind of unite them to keep the country together, and it worked. Now, this is okay because, as you've pointed out, Maureen, like, everybody's still Christian. We're still good. Then we adopt manifest destiny in the 1800s, the idea that we should rule the entire continent. Why? Because it was inherent. It was our destiny. It was, we could see it. God had blessed this country as a whole. We used that to annex Texas. We used it to take over Oregon. We used it to take over the Pacific Northwest. We used it to fight a war to take over the lands that were held by what was Mexico. Because the idea was, this is ours. God gave it to us. And when we were done taking it geographically, it converted into, and now we have this manifest destiny to defend democracy throughout the world, which we'll see in the next century, in the 20th century, coming up. Also during this time, in the mid-1800s to the beginning of the 20th century, we saw immigration waves bringing people of slightly different faiths. I mean, we already had Catholic colonies, but now there was a mass immigration from Europe, the Irish, the Italians. There were some Germans. And they were bringing with them Catholic faith, which we could still say, still Christian, let's just broaden the definition of God a little bit more, right? Let's just keep it going. We don't have to refer to specific things. They're still good. We can still use them to share the view of God of America. And then... In the 20th century, what some people have called the American century. America finally comes into its own in so many ways, especially after World War II, when the rest of Europe is decimated and we're the ones that save the day. That gives us a purpose, a mission, that we then translate into even a religious experience. America's economic power becomes more evidence of God's blessing. Not only did we have this mythical rise, the democracy that covered the continent, 
And now in the 20th century, we haven't even hit 200 years yet, and we're already this economic power. We see the missionary movement as we start to send our missionaries all over the world to teach them American, I mean Christianity. <laughs> you know, like we're sending people everywhere. A new type of colonialism, you know. Not that we were alone. There were others. The British were very good at it too, right? Even in the Cold War, there were these themes of good versus evil. If you go back and listen to the speeches of Ronald Reagan about what the Soviet Union represented and what America represented, they were using spiritual, religious language during this period of time. Throughout the 20th century, the battles in fundamentalism, evangelicalism, even Christians entering politics. If you go back to the 1960s, one of the most interesting quotes I've seen is Jerry Falwell in the 1960s when the civil rights movement going on saying, Christians have no place in politics. It's not their realm. Until a close friend named Ronald Reagan gets elected and then suddenly Christians form the moral majority and right-wing kind of organizations and they find their own voice in politics for the second like the second half, well, we can even say like the last quarter of the 20th century. And finally, you know, if you look at American history, it was mostly about integration and assimilation. For most of its history, until the latter part of the 20th century, we kind of shifted to diversity. And that's actually what's bringing us to where we are now. Because I struggled as I was even putting up all this history, like why remind you of these things? What do they have to do with our faith? I think we need to be able to identify the root cause, the root place where some of our own ideas come from and where those come from our friends because we need to engage them in dialogue. Last week, Jill's dad came up afterwards, and you probably know he's a pastor in Arizona, and he was telling me about a story of a man who goes to his church, who left the church. You know, he was counseling him like, your view about the Second Amendment is not really biblical. You know, he was challenged, like, what if tomorrow they said that the Second Amendment didn't allow you to have guns? and they came to your house to take your guns away, and the guy said, I'd shoot them before they showed up. That was his answer. And the challenge was, how is that a biblical Christian response? And the arguments that ensued over how it was that a pastor could even think that the Bible didn't sanction the Second Amendment <laughs> led him to eventually leave the church and just say, I, I can't be part of a church that doesn't believe in these rights. The idea that some of our rights, some of our laws, they would never stand a biblical scrutiny. So that's why I wanted to remind us of these things so that we could help in conversation with people say, I don't know where you got that idea, but I don't know that that matches the God that we worship. That may have come from some of this. Any comments on any of this history? You guys remember this? Anybody? American history? Like, yes, manifest destiny. I remember that. So here's what I want to just kind of end with and go back to that question and let you guys just kind of wrestle back because this is more information dump for you. On September 23rd in 2001, there was a prayer for America held at Yankee Stadium. This was after the 9-11 attacks. The nation was kind of reeling. We were having difficulty understanding. Churches all across the nation were all having sermons about where was God, right? Everybody wanted to know. Churches were filling up and people were coming back to faith. Back to faith, right? That's what we were saying. We were saying, wow, this really shook up the nation. And people were coming back. It was a time when if you drove down the road, if you remember, like every single car had flags on the car. Do you guys remember that period of time? It was remarkable, just spontaneously, like everywhere you went. People were identifying and trying to say, like, we will not be defeated by this. There was a very kind of unifying time for the country. 
and it brought people back into churches. There were pastors who were asking what they were doing there. Are you really seeking God or are you seeking solace for a national tragedy? Which one is it? And that's a very difficult question to ask because really we don't know the answer and you just say, we'll just keep going. This is a time when we won't ask, we'll just keep preaching. But the questions on everybody's mind were those questions like, where was God on 9-11? How could he have it have allowed to happen? And you could see the civil responses that started to come out. And I say civil, religious responses because we had to find answers. People were searching for things and they were just trying to come up with anything. All right, here's the prayer for America. They decided that the best thing to do for a national healing was to invoke God to be there for America's special place in his eyes. Christian, Jewish, Muslim, Sikh, and Hindu leaders lead prayer at Yankee Stadium for all of these things. So the question I'm asking, because if I'm going to critique civil religion in some way and say, if you haven't heard me say it tonight, it's something that we should be at least clear that that is not the same thing as the God that we worship. And we should not engage it from a political view or even from a religious view as if somehow that's the same thing as what we do. But I haven't answered this question. I'm going to let you answer it. Does it violate the first commandment to join in these kind of things? And I don't think there's a clear answer, by the way. I want you to tell me what you think. Do you think that if you were a Christian pastor and you were asked to speak at one of these events, that you should say yes or no and why? Yeah. It sounds kind of like when uh, leaders of the countries get together and have like some sort of a meeting. And it's like they're all coming from different places and representing different things. But what's wrong with that? You okay. know, if you are a Christian and you walk into a room with a Muslim and um, people of different faith, what's wrong with representing your God? They're going to know that we're Christians by our love, period. You know, and it's like, it's not that we're partaking in, in what they do. And we, we have that boundary still of different religions. Okay, so Alyssa's point is nothing wrong with it. Maybe even more ambassadorial, if I could pull that out, uh, because we're actually engaging with other people. Yeah. If we're talking about the church's role in society and almost how society looks at Christians, I think even like to look at the question in different ways to say what's going to happen if Christians decide not to go? What right. stereotypes is that going to reinforce about Christians being intolerant, about being mm -hmm. Christians being closed-minded, about Christians being backwards thinking and not forward movers? and you know, and are those stereotypes, is it more important to stand up and say, we feel like this is a violation of the first commandment, and then allow those stereotypes to be reinforced? Well, that's a good question. Let's just assume for a moment, assume that it was a violation of the first commandment. Which would be worse, in your mind, violating the you shall have no other gods before me standard, or appearing intolerant? I think violating God's will is, is, more, is more important. And in that, if, that, if for sure you could say that it is a violation, then you would have to stand up and say, no, we can't partake in this. It's okay. God's will. And we haven't made that determination, and everybody has to make it on their own, but that's the question. Yeah. I would say that, at least for me, um, I think that it's not really a Even just with this, I'm not sure it's a problem, because I do think that the same God who rules over the Christians rules over... Jews and the Muslims as well. I mean, I, I, I know that's very controversial. I'm not sure exactly how I would flesh that out, but I don't think it's a different God necessarily. Um, I mean, maybe if it was Hindu with like 3.5 million gods, that might be. I don't. I don't but, but but they're there too. But even in Hinduism, there's a there's a concept of this kind of divine trinity. I mean, de depending on how far up you go in, in the kind of the faith. 
By the way, you said it was a ex exchange of ideas, right? I think they're praying. But I'm not sure that those prayers aren't to different gods, is what okay. I'm saying. I think that's the same god. That's probably my point. I think they are to different gods. But you're saying you're not sure they are. I would err on the side that they're, they're not different gods. Okay. So anyone else comment? Would you do this? Yeah. Um, I think it, for a situation like this, I think it would be important to, to do something. To, to, because I think God calls us to have a presence um, with different kinds of people in, in different situations. Um, so I think something like this and about like this, I think it would be important to, to go and to be there, you know, and to have that. Okay. Just a final comment to sort of give a more concrete answer to this question. I think it's only a violation of the first commandment if, you do, if, you're, if you're all praying to some generic God. If you stand up and say specifically, I am praying to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the Christian God, you know, in the Holy Trinity of Jesus Christ. Like, if you specifically define who you're praying to and in your heart, if you proclaim with your mouth that's the God you're praying to and know in your heart that that's the God who you're praying to, then you're not really involved with what other people are doing. It's, if you kind of look at it on a more individual basis and know, in, you know yourself, then I don't think it's a violation of the First Commandment. How many people, if you were the one called to go, would go to pray for the Christian perspective? Anyone not go? Anyone say, nope, can't do it? Okay. The comment you just made, actually, Rachel, is really important. Let's go back to the First Commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. Actually, a literal rendering of the Hebrew would lead to you shall have no other gods in my presence. Not just like God first, which unfortunately happens to be the <laughs> motto of this university. <laughs> but, but God only is actually the way it should be properly rendered. Nothing but God. Now, of course, we know that we're talking about among our objects of faith and worship. They're not saying, like, you can't eat or you can't have a life. But no other gods before me just means not like, hey, as long as I'm first, you could have other gods. It doesn't just prohibit that. It actually prohibits literally, like, I don't want any gods in my face, it literally says in Hebrew. Like, before my face. The way that we had the classic showdown on Mount Carmel between the gods of Baal and the God who gives us his name, Jehovah, or Yahweh. It's very telling that God gives his name specifically to his people, and that's how he identifies himself. And it becomes a very revered thing to the point that some people would not repeat it. The only reason I bring it up is because there's this schism about this issue, and it actually becomes consequential. Do we engage in that kind of service where we say, even showing up to a service that involves multiple faiths is acknowledging that I'm just one God or I represent a God, but there are other gods. Does that by itself violate the first commandment? The reason I liked Rachel's comment was it was talking about if we were establishing that it was a generic God, which is kind of the word she was using, that it was just the God that we've been describing that developed through American history, the God who blesses America, who provides for America, who makes sure that Americans pay their taxes. It's the ones that makes Americans vote. It's the one that makes Americans do the right thing all the time. It's the ones that make Americans go to the factory during World War II so that we can promote freedom and democracy, that God. It's probably no different in my mind because that's not our God. 
even though we could adopt that and say for a long time we could coexist with that God, the God who champions maybe the Second Amendment, the God who champions something that we don't understand. And by the way, I'm not trying to denounce the Second Amendment. I'm saying there are some people who identify it so closely that it becomes a God. Or it becomes a God-sanctioned thing, like as if God wrote the Bill of Rights right after he finished dictating the Ten Commandments. That was the next thing he was on his agenda. You know? Those are the kinds of things I'm trying to keep us from. So that's one side. That if you start to worship a God who's generic, or who's born of the American experience, or if you're identifying at a rally with God the Christian God, but you're doing it in such a way where you say, well, that's just the God I believe in, but there are other beliefs and there are other people, which is true, but you're actually invoking God in the presence of other gods, the argument would be that violates the first commandment. The other argument that I've heard that I find equally compelling is, but if we don't go, what does that say about us? Aren't we supposed to go into the world? Are we only supposed to go into places where they worship God? Then we would not go very many places. Or how are we to engage other people? Or what does it say to us? I've heard words like love and tolerance. Or the fact that we would be labeled intolerant. Although I like that you kind of backed up a little bit and said if you had to choose between knowing for certain that you were violating the first commandment versus being intolerant, I guess we'd have to choose being intolerant is just the that's just too bad. You can label me what you want, but I care more about what my God demands of me in worship. But that's a tension we have to start to identify because as we start to look at, well, what do Christians do in society when they're up against these difficult things? This is just to start us thinking down that road. Here's the second commandment. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. What does that mean? That means don't cuss, right? Isn't that what everybody's told us? That means like, don't say, God did, right? That's what it means, right? Or don't say, Jesus did, like, right? That's what it means. Well, that's what it means to us ever since junior high camp and forward. That's what it's meant to us, right? The Hebrew actually might imply it means something else. Again, do not take the name of the Lord your God like the empty thing, like vanity meaning literally emptiness, do not take it as just an empty generic, maybe. We've heard that word. Now, I don't want to twist the meaning too hard, but some people would say that when we take it to be not the name of our God who has given us his name, notice the capital Lord, like implying that God, is, God gave people his name and told his name and his revelation to his people, and that's how he said, you are my people and here is my name. It's in his revelation in that way that he intends his name to be treated very sacredly. So I'm not saying we should cuss or use his name in the way we've commonly come to understand it. But could it also mean that when we create a generic God or when we create a God who's not the God who's revealed and has given us his name, that we're actually worshiping a totally different God? All right. Again, I, mean, I still think there's a significant case to be made for are we going to withdraw and how do we not engage other people? How do we not show up? Do Christians just get not represented at these things? But I would also push back and say, but if Christians can't express what they really believe because it would seem intolerant or it would seem like it's not inclusive, then are we really representing God at all anyway? 
if we're there to support a generic American God. The reason I put up all those pictures at the beginning was I could see that some of you had some like strong reactions to that American God, because you look at it as a particular American God, maybe a right-wing American God, one that you've come to just associate with patriotism and nationalism, and it's easy to deride it. But I don't care what God it is. If it's not the God who's expressed and found in the scriptures, then it doesn't matter if he's a left-wing God or if he's a civil rights God or if he's any other God other than the God that we have, then we're probably not representing that God. Yes? I think we have to just be really careful, though, when we make statements like the God expressed in scriptures, because that's like a whole another nine weeks. I mean, well, longer than nine weeks, really. But what do we mean by the God expressed in scriptures? How do we understand that? Well, it's kind of like what, the way you're putting it is very sexy and appealing. Um, Thank you. Yeah, I really wanted that on tape. Um, I, I think that's like it's that's that's the, all that they'll hear. It's just that little snippet. Um, I think like that's still just as vague and undefined. You know, Westboro Baptist Church has an idea of how God is expressed in Scripture, and I'm sure a new song has an idea of how God is. So, I mean, that's not not any more definitive. It is more, let's say, definitive than, for example, it's more definitive than that, right? Okay. And I think that's the point I'm trying to all end with, which is for sure, and I said it last week, it's easy for me to talk about we are supposed to be unified with one mind under Christ. He's the head, we're the body, the whole church, all Christians. And I said this last week. And the problem we have is that we all think we have an individual choice to make about every single doctrine, every single idea, every single issue. We really, ideally, and it isn't ideal, have one mind, which is Christ. We follow him. But I also said last week exactly what you just said. The difficulty then is how do we figure out what that is when all of us are sitting around with different interpretations and backgrounds and understandings. Granted. That's why I say it's an ideal and it's going to be very hard for me to get to it. But I think what I'm trying to do at least tonight is cross off one thing off the list, which is that. Because as we march forward to start to engage with how we're supposed to engage society, the first thing that people think about is how to engage politics. And I think the first thing we have to do before we even talk about that is say, wait a minute, politics has diluted our God, first of all. It's actually, if you really want to look what the Founding Fathers did, they used religion to their advantage to control the people. And every politician afterwards has probably done something very similar. It's very powerful. So we have to at least be careful when we do some of these things. We can identify it here, but we need to identify it in ourselves as well. That might sound very religious, but I don't know that that's the God who's expressed in Scripture, and we could talk about what that means for the next nine weeks. Okay? Let's leave it there. I've done enough history and talking tonight. Next week, we're actually going to start offering some solutions and see if you like them about what is our role in society and what we're going to do. All right, let's pray and close up. God, I thank you tonight that you've given us uh, just a mind to think through these things with. And Lord, I ask that you take something from tonight's discussion, as jumbled as it may be and as much as it might be, that you would give us something that we're going to use in a conversation as we work with others so that we can purify our own hearts and our own motives and our own following of you, or so we can help someone else to do the same. Lord, there is so much confusion in this country about our place in society within the church and outside. Lord, may you just give us a mind in here. Lord, I say bless us 
with your wisdom. Bless us with your mind. Let us understand what it is. Truly be our head. Help us to understand, even if it just begins here, and even if we influence only a few people around us, then we've done something faithfully to what you've given us. So Lord, I ask for that specifically tonight, that you would begin to build in us hearts that truly desire you and want to see people worship you and move away from the things that we've confused for you, that we've made idols. Pray this in your name. Amen.